Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm chatting with writer-director of Fine Footage Horror, Tony Devlin, about his wonderful film, The Glenarma Tapes. Tell me a little bit about how um, the idea came together. Yeah, so um, I ended up on the new writer focus course with NI Screen and I was writing a particular movie and it's called Dulaman. It's a psychological thriller set on an island off the north coast of Ireland. And um, when we finished the new writer focus course, we went on the new talent focus course with this movie. And the money that NI Screen were offering for, you know, to, to shoot your film, I don't think it would have shot the first, the, the prologue of this movie. You know, it was like 10 times because it was all set at sea. It was on an island. There's so many factors that just increased the budget so much. So we looked back on something that we had been considering since 2018, pre-COVID, and we started to develop it, and it was um, the Glen Armour tapes. Yeah, and I knew that, that it was much more achievable on a on a very, very low budget, you know, 350000 Sounds like a lot of money in real terms, but in movie terms, it just didn't. And it was something that I knew we could shoot in, in 14 days for that kind of money. Um, so that's how it came about. So 14 day shoot, that's short for a feature as well. Yeah, we, we shot four, five days week one, four days week two and four days week three. So it was very tight. Yeah, there's a lot of plot in it for a horror film. Like you have a lot of character development set up. Um, there's a lot of kind of like narrative weaving the whole way through until you get to the point where, you know, the threat kicks in quite late, the sinister yeah. um, threat. I mean, you you do have like situational threats up to that point, but it's a very different tonal piece, which makes it a much more enjoyable watch because I think the found footage genre is like, it's very well-worn territory, but it's lovely to see something so local um, and then translating into that and fitting into that so well. So just tell me a little bit about how you found your characters for this. Like, where did you kind of dig in? Are these people that you know? Is this you from the past? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, Gemma, I think that's something I'm quite rooted in, which is narrative and the narrative, the storytelling aspect of it. You know, I run a theatre company in Belfast. We've been around for 17 years. I'm an actor. um, And I knew I wasn't making it easy for myself choosing found footage as my debut feature. And you, you know, I don't, I don't do uh, easy things. I don't do things by halves. And I didn't want to focus on, you know, I've, I've watched so many fine footage movies, Gemma, and it was just, I could see that they cost two million pounds, and I could see what they'd done right in my eyes and what they'd done wrong in my eyes. And I knew we didn't have that money, and so we couldn't focus on gore or you know any of the tropes of of found footage and scan lines and distortions and blackouts and blowout highlights and stuff. So I decided what we'll do is what we all do best, which is focus on narrative, create four central characters that the audience are going to relate to. We're, we're going to want them to survive. We're going to want to follow them. And as long as the thriller aspect and the drama and the narrative is there, then hopefully an audience will go with us because it is found footage. As you say, it's a very, very niche genre. My own theatre company, we um, we focus on working class stories. I'm working class boy from West Belfast. We we only do new writing, so we offer opportunities to new writers. And, and we're, we've done pretty well over the last lot of years. So I, I really wanted to focus on the working class aspect of these kids. 
And what's the best kind of hurdle for working class people is dealing with middle class people. So the middle class teachers versus the working class kids was a lovely kind of immediate obstacle for me to kind of put a hook into the movie. Uh, okay, so these kids don't like their teachers. Their teachers really don't like them, as, as you hear in the movie. All of a sudden, we've got threat. Uh, and then the threat is, let's follow these teachers, pull a prank on them. They'll never treat us in the manner that they do ever again. And then, of course, at the midpoint, the tables turn and and we are where we are. But I think, I hope that the audience are still with these working class kids, you know, who are all quite intelligent and ambitious and have a, a life drive. But, you know, just coming from my own background, that's what I wanted to focus on, the class aspect. I like to kind of, in most of my, my plays, and hopefully for my films going out is to address the C word that never seems to get addressed in the in the discourse of 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 everything these days. You know, the C word class never gets seemingly addressed, you know, and it's something that I feel really, really passionate about. And you know, I like to address and I hope we've addressed it in this in some kind of undercurrent. And tell me a little bit about um developing your film. So you were working on a screenplay HB. H block, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, um, and that's still in development or like in a process of development. So that was obviously something. Was that with the option of someone else shooting it as a screenwriter, particularly, or yeah? So in twenty, I think it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, maybe we we went to Cannes with a screenplay that I'd written, and I saw Jim Sheridan on the beach, and I I went up to him, him and Fran, who's now passed away, sadly. And uh, I said, Jim, I have a screenplay. And he said, oh, please, he's just email me. Send me an email. You know, he didn't want to be disturbed. So I let him go. And I came home and I sent him the email. <clears throat> I sent him the screenplay. And about a week later, the phone went. And he said, who's this? And I said, you phone me. Who's this? And he says, Jim Sheridan. I said, oh, Jesus, Jim. <laughs> James, how you doing? And he says, who wrote this thing? And I says, I wrote it. And he said, can you come down to Dublin? And I says, I can't, surely. When? He says, this evening. And I just had these two twins and I was kind of, you know, feeding one and then feeding the other. And then and I was like, so I was on the on the Enterprise down to Dublin that night. And we spent three years living with Jim and just going back and forth, um, figuring out what this movie was and, and, and doing draft after draft. And then we raised millions for it. And it was class. And all of a sudden we went to Cannes and we'd attached Killian Murphy, Jimmy Dornan and Pierce Brosnan to play, play the three leads. The huge posters and cans mm-hmm. with my name on it and directed by Jim Sheridan, written by myself. So it was, you know, mind-blowing how kind of quickly it escalated, that screenplay, and would kind of captured a, a zeitgeist at the time. Um, and then COVID hit. <laughs> you don't need oh. to, you know, that's another C word I don't like to mention very often. I don't mind talking about class, but the other C word. Um, <laughs> and, and then it all just kind of, you know, died in the water essentially so I was talking to Jim there a couple of weeks ago He he's kind of currently busy on another project that he's working on with his daughter and but he's very adamant that we go back and we get this made because we had raised so much finance we were like 25% off total finance for this movie um, and we still believe we can make it work um, so we'll see what happens so so during during those years, which was you know everyone was at home, that's when I started looking at the Glen Arma tapes and Dolaman 
what else am I going to do? I can't keep focusing on that because Jim's kind of got it under control. And if we ever come up, come out of this pandemic, we'll revisit it. But, you know, don't rest on your laurels. Let's see what's next. And that's how um, I got the luxury of of being financed by an ice cream for the Glen Armouth hips. It was a it was a bitter pill to swallow because he'd gone from not nothing to ninety. You know, I'd, I'd never made a, a you know a feature before. Here I've written one, and we're going to make it for twelve million dollars. You know, it was insane. And then I get to create my first day, my debut feature, and it's three hundred fifty thousand. You know, which isn't a hell of a lot of money, but um, it was a it was a nice kind of cushion coming out of COVID that we were able to kind of shoot that. And so hopefully my foot is on the. The first rung of the ladder. That development process with Northern Ireland Screen, would they um sort of, you know, kind of mark you as a talent and, you know, you apply for funding and get mentorship schemes? Like, is it is it similar up there? The incredible scheme that it was on, Gemma. It was called New Writer Focus. You know, so you get a lot of applicants every year. <clears throat> and after H-Block, I'd written Dulaman. And I, I actually wrote it in Irish. I'm an Irish language speaker. And I, I'd written it in Irish language initially. And then I thought, I can't submit this to an ice cream because we, we'd, we'd submitted it to Cine 4 and we were down to the last couple for Cine 4 scheme and Arak got, got the money in the end to shoot, shoot oh, their debut yeah. feature, which was an incredible movie. Um, <clears throat> and I knew how much this movie would cost before I even submitted. So I retranslated it back, to, back into English and submitted and they loved it. So they allowed me on the course with two other writers and we basically, between the three of us, with a mentor, Ursula Devine, who is um, heading up the that scheme in, in NI Spring, just an incredible year because it was during those COVID years as well. So you had a lot of time to focus on it and a lot of time, you know, working with the other two writers, listening to their experiences, taking feedback from those guys, <clears throat> constructive criticism, sharing it amongst each other, mentored by Ursula. I mean, you can't pay for that kind of experience. Ursula, with all her years of experience, two other very experienced writers, all, you know, relatively friendly without even falling out over a course of a whole year by giving constructive criticism, helping you build and um, improve the narrative of your movie to make it the best thing that it can be in in your terms. And by the end of it, you know, we were offered the money to to shoot this. So that development opportunity, Mm -hmm. it was just so, you know, it'll stay with me forever. All the lessons that That's I amazing. through that, the opportunities, you know, we flew to London, to Edinburgh. We met industry professionals who also give us constructive criticism, feedback, how this movie can be financed, all the rest of it. So it was one of those courses where you'd easily pay tens of thousands of pounds just to just to learn your craft. And we did it in a very um, condensed year year period it sounds like a really great all-rounder because so so often schemes maybe they'll just focus on the screenwriting but there's a a plethora of other nurturing not being condescending to new young writers you know we were all in our 40s i think oh mc will kill me she's probably a bit younger than that she's 30s but you know we weren't we weren't 21 year olds we weren't just out out of school or out of college so it was that kind of thing about knowing that we all had experience in our own kind of crafts um, but mentoring that to be to make sure that our scripts were the best that they could potentially be. And speaking of that you've directed an enormous amount of um, theatre for in in all of the in, in every single uh, sized venue so tell me a little bit about how it's different for a feature and what's the same with regards to the skills, the talent, the requirements, the the prep? Yeah, I get that question quite a bit, you know, even in Q's and Q&As and stuff about um, 
the difference between, you know, going from theatre to film. Look, Sam Mendes, you know, was an incredible theatre director and then he went and made, uh, you know, American. Uh... Here's the thing. If you've enough experience as a theatre director, you you operate with a black box. You have nothing. You're, you're, you're lucky if you maybe get 10 grand off the Arts Council to create another world and suspend an audience disbelief in a room with a black a black box and a couple of actors. Maybe if you're lucky enough to have a set. But if you have enough ability to kind of transcend an audience for two hours in a theatre with um, just actors and no special effects and... You know, it, you don't have the luxury of a, of a camera, um, car chases and all the rest of it, and take them on a journey, then I think that'll hold you in very good stead. If you have a good way with actors, which was, as, you, as you've seen from our movie, which was imperative. We didn't have, as I said to you earlier, Gemma, we didn't have the finance for the gore, and we didn't want to reinvent the wheel <clears throat> with the, 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 the found footage genre. It had already been done 10 times better than I could ever do or afford to do. So my focus was my relationship with these four protagonists. Now I've had 20 years of experience of doing that in a theatre, of working with one-man one shows to, to eight-man shows and bigger. Uh, and as you say, you know, toured all over Ireland, Britain, America. Um, and I think that ability to take, to on, on shoestring budgets, to be able to have successful productions that transcend audiences' disbelief for two hours held me in very good stead. Now... The downside of it is a kid coming out of film school at 21 years of age will know a lot more about lenses than I would ever do of a camera. But so so I had done a lot of reading beforehand. I've done a lot of kind of research. I went through, you know, no film school, free online. And I thought, if I get a good DOP, you know, never, never, ne never let uh, my advice kind of to anyone coming in to direct film for the first time would be don't let um, don't let cameras get in the way of, you know, you being a first time feature film director. If you're a theater, if you're a director, you're a director. If you get a good DOP. They will talk you through lenses as, as long as you've got the vision, as long as you understand composition. And you can work with actors in order to get the best performance of what the DOP is trying to capture in front of that camera. All of that's going to hold you in really good stead. You know, don't let the kind of image thing, the, 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 the camera issues hold you back from, from taking a foray into film. And I got an incredible DOP. It was her first time feature. It was her debut feature. In fact, most of my HODs were all, all women. No, one wasn't. Mostly women. Uh, HODs, uh, yes, they were um, all first time feature debuts. Um, and me and her just clicked from the off. I, I interviewed everybody for their jobs, which I also think is very important. And as soon as me and her got on it, I mean, I'd interviewed seven people, I think she was the second last, and I knew, I knew immediately there's no point in seeing anybody else. She gets my vision, she gets my movie, she's coming at me with all these ideas, and me and her's going to get on like a house on fire. Um, and on on set, I throw my hands up when I don't know. And she talked me about conversation. She talked me about lens. Um, and I think that's how we got it done, just by collaborative. When I when I'm working in theater, I bring I sit in a room with designers. So I've got a, a costume designer, a lighting designer, set designer, audio visual designer, and then my actors as tools in front of me. It has to be a collaborative thing. 
You know, it's not Tony Devlin's play or Tony Devlin's movie. As long as we're all taking that, everybody starts to feel ownership of it. And I think that's what I brought on set, that everybody really bought into this movie and uh, and, and felt ownership. It was their movie. Hence, they were all happy to work at four o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold forest in the middle of March. Oh, good. Yeah, goodwill goes a long way. So, yeah, so I think the pros are experience of of doing, you know, theatre with a shoestring budget and the experience of that. And then having good collaborators around you who can teach you the ropes on set in terms of cameras and lenses and composition and all of those things that you mightn't be okay with. And speaking of HODs being mostly um, women, which is amazing and great, um, theatre would be a lot more gender equal than traditionally film has been up to this yeah. point. Um, yeah. Like what, because you're again quite established now in both industries, what are, do you find the differences are, the pros and cons of the industries? Because I know, you know, with regards to theatre, you might be more protective of the script in a way that in film, it's really just the blueprint. Do you know, like what are the things that you notice that are different and the goods and bads in that across the whole industry? I mean, I, I I've come into the directing film game very late in my 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 life. Um, at forty five years of age, when I was an actor in front of screen, I mean, I'd done two huge movies. I'd done Band of Brothers and Hearts War back to back. War, yeah. They were all male dominated. Well, first of all, they were two movies, the World War Two movies. Um, so you know, we we were all male prisoners in Hearts War and Band of Brothers. It was a male platoon. Male directors, a lot of the HODs were male. This was 20 years ago, of course, um, as you say. Um, so back then, you know, th- there wasn't too many. And I don't know whether it was a conscious decision. It, it wasn't a conscious decision that the majority of my HODs on the Glen Arma tapes were female. I didn't go out of my way to kind of make that the thing. They were just the best people for the jobs that I interviewed. And all of a sudden, I've got, you know, a gender imbalance because there's not too many male HOTs. I've been surrounded my entire life by women, my, my, all my sisters, my mom, we, we're very much a matriarchy in our family. I've now got two twin daughters, as you've just seen at the beginning of this. Yeah. Um, my general manager of my theatre company is female. I've tend to, <laughs> it's very, very strange. The last six plays have been all female orientated, huge plays, the Holy Holy Bus by Pierce Elliott was a four-woman show, which is about to become a movie with Brenda Fricker in it. Um, you know, cast of four females. The, the play that we did coming out of COVID was, or sorry, before COVID happened, was Conversations with Angels, which was an all-female five-hander that I directed with an all-female crew behind me. You know, I was literally the only male in the room for that one. When we came out of COVID, so this year we just started our first play, it's a one-woman show about a woman working in car homes during the pandemic. And uh, the play that we just um, world premiered this summer was Project Children, written by Fanula Kennedy, who's one of Ireland's best writers. She's just about to go into the film industry. She's just had a huge commission from the BBC for a first-time first time writer. Um, she, you know. I don't know whether it's conscious decisions at this stage or whether it's just the way the world is going. But for me, it was these are the best scripts. It just so happens to be written by a woman. These are the best uh, people for the job, the HOD, HODs, my DOP on Glen Arma tapes. She was the best person for the job. Um, so, yeah, I don't, it was never a conscious decision for me, I think. 
maybe I just feel more comfortable having all these really strong female voices around me telling me, keep me in my place and telling me, making sure that I don't step out of line. Um, in relation to script, um, what was it? What was it about script? Yeah, no, it's just I know, and the the text is treated very differently in um, oh, yes. in theater than with film. Oh. You know, in, in film, it's really seen as a blueprint, and the director can like cut yeah. anything at any point. And in theater, it's 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 you know more protected. And well, I don't know about that, but it's certainly not in our theater company because in our theater company we only do new writing. You know, so for example, me and Fanula, I commissioned Fanula in July last year to write this script and she gave me a final draft at Christmas there. So for those six months, me and Fanula were going back and forth saying that's never going to work. This is shouldn't be in this play. This is for this is a story for another another play altogether. Wow, maybe maybe the end should be closer to the beginning and we would have a different end. And so we were always moving things about. So so writers who I commissioned for the theater company know that they can't be precious because it's new writing and it's it, it's just it, it's going to have a course of development um, because it's new writing. It's just not ready on first draft to go out there with film. Um, I mean, I was the, the, the writer, the co-writer on Glen Arma tapes. So it was always open for development, not just prior to shooting, but on shoot. You know, one of the one of the best things we ever one of the best decisions I think we ever made was that once I got the right cast together, because it was a no acting zone. You know, I wanted these kids to be inexperienced. I didn't want that kids coming along saying, I've acted in this movie, that movie. I wanted inexperience because, you know, as I've said to other people, if if theatre's naturalism, film is realism, what's found footage? It's the far side of realism. It's like no acting zone. I'd say to the actors every day, if I see any acting, someone's someone's going to be found buried in this forest. I don't want to see any acting. When I shout action, no, no acting, no performances. Just got to keep it real because it's a guy following you around. So then the suspension of disbelief goes even further. So I was saying to them, look, if something goes wrong, if, if a tree falls over or a tree branch falls down, hits you in the head, don't stop acting. Just just keep going. Just keep going. We'll follow you with the camera and that'll be gold because we, the other characters will react to that, take the piss out of you, and then it'll stay in the movie. So there was a lot of room for maneuverability in terms of script. I said, don't be rigid to these lines. I'm I'm much happier for you to you know if, if it's not colloquial enough colloquialize it even further, um go if, if, if someone throws a, a wrong line at you throw something else back at them, and a lot of those moments stayed in Glen Armour tapes, which added to the realism of found footage and the suspension of disbelief, because the difficulty of found footage is the, the ones that I felt didn't hit home as much is when the cast I could really tell they're acting. And so I don't buy into them and I don't believe them. And and when it comes across like that, you kind of don't want to follow them, you know. So I wanted those actors to feel there's no camera, you know, it's you're be, be very aware that there's a camera following you around. Let's be un, unapologetic about that. Uh, and then we'll get somewhere on the far side of realism. So in terms of script, yeah, um, theater, our theater company that I can only speak for, we're kind of very open in that we're not precious about it until we open. And the same with, um, well, Glen Arma Tips was a fluid, organic process, even on set. And the, one of the things that really works is, you know, how you examine that real life um, friction between, you know, these these kids, these working class kids and their sort of... <laughs> 
pretentious middle class um, teachers. Do you find what are the themes with you as a writer, specifically to the writing that you're drawn to either working on as a director or creating yourself? What are the themes you find yourself going back into more? Are they do they change from project to project completely or does it boil down to, you know, like something like identity or like it, is there anything that you feel like you're kind of constantly exploring through your work? Uh, yeah, that's a really difficult one because <clears throat> I don't think there ever is. If you look back at the canon of our theatre company, of what we've done, it's such a broad range. I've always said, let's never put Brassnack Theatre Company, let's never pigeonhole ourselves. Let's never put in, ourselves in a box to say we're physical theatre company. We're, you know, if we want to do Hamlet, we'll do Hamlet at some stage. And, but I think it just happened organically that we became the new writing theatre company because I was getting so many scripts in from writers who would never have the opportunity to go on the main stage of the Lyric Theatre or the Abbey or the Mac Theatre in Belfast. And I thought, I'm going to give these guys and girls the opportunity because these pieces are amazing and their voices are really strong. It's completely contrasting to our last play, which was... You know, we've done a comedy about suicide that we took to even New York City. How do you write how do you write a comedy about suicide? What's funny about suicide? Well, nothing. But when the Irish high Irish humor, high Irish dark black humor goes, certainly Belfast black humor, when we're reflecting on stories of our friends who have maybe taken their own lives, we don't look at the dark side. We look at the uh, uh, do you remember he did this? Do you remember he done that? All of a sudden it's a laugh out loud comedy until the upper cut, cut comes where we say, Jesus, he could have been a stuntman in Hollywood if he hadn't topped himself, you know, and then the uppercut comes. So you find yourself creased over a woman. And, and then the next minute we do this, this show we've just done, which was Project Children, which was an organization that took Catholic and Protestant kids out of Belfast during the 70s, 80s, 90s and 90s to America for six weeks during the summer. So uh, a very, very broad range in terms of uh, what I would, what I enjoy doing. And it's about giving other people's voices a platform, irrespective of kind of what my, um, what my voice is. My voice is, I guess, look, you look at the, I was watching a Kubrick doc last night on, on uh, room 237 about The Shining. You know, and you can kind of pigeonhole the likes of Kubrick because he had an IQ of 200 and he just painted beautiful pictures, composition, storylines. Um, I think what I would say about me is, I don't know, I'm embarrassed now. It's just about giving the working class a, a voice, giving people who wouldn't necessarily have a platform, a platform to be able to showcase their voices. And that's what I enjoy doing as director. Yeah. And so we, you have screenings coming up. The horror crowd specifically are a tough crowd yeah. to please. How do you find, you know, how do you find them? Were they were they welcoming? Because again, I think that sort of authentic uh, Irish voice and Northern Irish voice and, and that banter, like I haven't seen that in that setting in that way. And that's that kind of spin on it that makes it really enjoyable to watch because you're like, of course, they'd they'd be tough as nails as well in a way that like, you know, three, three Yanks from Wisconsin. Probably. Yeah, look, I, I know, look, from a very young stage of my directing career, even in theatre, I know the Bob Marley ad adage, you can please some people some of the time, but you can't please and don't try and please everybody. It's not going to matter, you know. 
if a lot of people enjoy this movie, happy days. Of course, you're not going to get 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. But for the percentage that do enjoy it, then you've achieved something. You had 350 grand, 14 days to shoot it. If you're content with it and people, some people enjoy it, then you've done you've done your job, you know. Um, it's the world premiere next Saturday in in Leicester Square in London. It's at Horror Fright Fest, which is going to have horror fans all around the world who've seen every horror movie ever. I'm not an expert in horror, but as we talked about earlier in in the film or in this um, Zoom, Gemma, uh, I didn't want to go out of my way to be the the best horror movie ever or the best found footage. We just focus on narrative and, and story storytelling. And if we do that right, then everything else should effectively fall into place. So am I concerned? Of course, I'd love everybody to absolutely love this movie and tell everyone else to go out and see it. But uh, we, uh, we're content with it. And, and quite a lot of people that have watched screeners really enjoy it. We know it's not going to be, you know, the Blair Witch Project. But uh, for, a, for a piece of, of film that we've that's my debut, I'm really, really happy. I always love character driven stuff. I the the crack is fierce for the whole thing, and there's yeah, it's there's a different slant on it. I think as well. You, I don't. I actually don't want to say what it is because it is too revealing towards the plot. But it's just interesting because it does do stuff other found footage films don't, um, and that's examined the narrative in a slightly different way consistently so like i don't i think there's i think there's plenty in there for a non-horror fan there's plenty in there like that that nods to the genre and again i just think the characters are so entertaining the whole way i'm i i kind of want to see the 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 prequel years of them just them just like smoking weed on a couch you have those (laughs) ideas down the prequels and the sequels to this you know and um yeah, they're all there, you know. We hope your world premiere goes well. Like, Fry Fest is a, is a high-pressure one. Oh it's difficult God. because we're kind of riding two horses with this movie. And are we, are, you know, are we serving either? Which which is it? Because some some um, festivals we didn't get into, giant horror festivals, because it doesn't quite fit the, the, the horror genre. Is there enough slasher in it? Is there enough gut blood and gore in it? Well, no, there isn't. But as you say, I think that, that Irish storytelling ability thing where this kid has a younger sister who lives in a very dysfunctional household. And if he doesn't survive, that young sister has to go back to that very dysfunctional household. So we kind of want him to survive, to get back to her. And that kind of underpinned everything else before even the found footage element came into it, before the the plot twist in the middle of the movie came into it. It was all about what are the hurdles and obstacles here for this kid the, the protagonist to have to be the protector of his younger sister. That that'd be the driving force. And if we have that as the driving force, then hopefully everything else will fall into place. But we shall see. And actually I did want to ask a little bit about the edit. Yeah. Did you find because like 14 days, that's so that's so tight. Did you find like there were and if you're if you're kind of editing at that scope, did you find anything had to change in that? Like I know pacing is so important for horror and the the jump scares, the to to get the beats right. Did you maybe script things that had to go, had to be added in and pickups or anything like that? We did. And I'll tell you why, because it's so difficult. You know, I remember someone asking me to get some more coverage someday. And I was like, coverage, coverage of what? This guy's following this guy around with a camera. You want a cutaway of birds flying and 
you know, a caterpillar going up the tree, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not interesting. Just keep the focus on our protagonist, the whole movie. Let's just stick on him until the, the midpoint and then it goes askew. So it was, you know, in that respect, I wanted, I knew the edit, obviously, you know, the edit is, is coming. So I wanted to, it was like a good production manager. You put out flames, fires before they're even lit. And I think we'd done that in the script before we went into shooting to preempt that because I knew the edit would be difficult otherwise. So we spent so much time going, there's no cutaways here. It's found footage. It's, you know, we, we jumped to this scene, we jumped to that scene, and that's constant fun. I almost at one point in the writing process, it was like, could we do the whole thing in a wonder? And I was like, no, well, no, obviously not, because the movie would be six hours long. It'd be insane. And there's a great wonder in the middle of it, which is a six-minute long wonder, when the kids go into the petrol station. We shot that three, no, four times we shot that, and I still use take one because it was my favourite because all five actors, they didn't have any time to think. We just shouted action. They walked across the forecourt into the petrol station, saw the dude behind the counter, picked up the goods that they wanted, had the conversation with him. He hit the monologue of the creepy story to the kids. The kids said, let's get out of here. And we used take one on that because it was the honor, you know what I mean? So there's no cutaways in that, you know, and and it kind of, we, we we fired at the entire movie like that, gentlemen. We were like, "Don't stop! Don't stop! Nobody shout cut! Please don't shout cut! You know, keep it going because there's gold in the found footage genre of what isn't in the script. Of if, if somebody trips over, you know, you, you see it. There's a moment where one of the kids falls off a, a tree crossing a river, and we we all laughed at that, but we we kept it in the movie, you know. So um, in the edit, I just had an incredible editor, Shan. She was, again, I'd worked with her on T.G. Cahar before. I'd done a, a, a series with T.G. Cahar that went on for five years, and she was the editor on it. But this was her first um, feature film. Uh, so we already had that relationship. And, you know, in the COVID year, she she set up a, a studio in her house. So I'd go around to her house for the edit every day, and that really helped. And when the two of us are just on the same page in terms of buying into the, the movie, it was it was almost seamless. I'm actually frightened to go into my if I get another movie into the next edit if it's not Sean, you know. So I think when you're just on the same wavelength and able to work together and, and know just what's right in terms of cuts uh, and pickups and all the rest, we only had a couple of pickups, not that many. And the weather gods were on our side. It was weird because it was the tail end of COVID, Gemma. So, but we were in a forest, and it was we always talk about this. It was like the two most glorious weeks in Irish history in a forest in South Derry. And it was just sunshine all day for all those exterior scenes. And then at night time, it didn't rain. It didn't rain for two weeks in Ireland. It was unheard of. And we were shooting to four in the morning. It was class. So somebody or something was on our side. Thanks so much. It was lovely to chat with you. Listen, Gemma, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Enjoy and good luck. Good luck for the premiere. Oh my God. Come on.